You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, how we doing this morning, everybody? Right on. Well, hey, my name's Jake. If I haven't met you yet, I serve as our director of equipping here at our downtown church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there, and then while you're there, place a finger there, and then also turn to Psalm 51. I trust you. I believe, I believe we can do this. 2 Samuel 12, Psalm 51. As you're turning there, our ministry spotlight for this week, I want to highlight is our 301 equipping classes. Show of hands if you attended that. Right on. So for those of you that don't know, our equipping classes are meant for people who have gone through the 101 Midtown class. They've done the 201 Life Group class. Equipping classes, they happened on Sunday mornings during the 9 a.m. gathering. They're not Sunday school classes, okay? I can't reiterate that enough. Not Sunday school. But they are classes that happen on Sunday. We launched four going on at the same time covering a whole variety of topics, including modern-day slavery and the Christian response. How can we fight back against that? We did one on systematic theology that lasted for several weeks. We did one on suffering, and when people undergo suffering and grief, what is the Christian response? How can we counsel people well through that? As well, we did church history, and we saw about 100 people sign up for those classes, attend those classes. We were able to get a couple of those classes recorded in the hopes that we can eventually put that online to make that available to you all. But I say all that to say if you give sacrificially, if you give continuously to our church, you actually empower us to be able to equip people to put on things like that, to be able to renovate spaces, buy equipment, to be able to train up leaders and teachers so that people are equipped to do the work of ministry. So thank you all so much for that. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 12, to give you a brief recap from last week, King David, he was supposed to be at war with his soldiers fighting. That's what kings normally do. But we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he's not doing that. He's just passively chilling on his rooftop, just watching Netflix, just being passive and just subverting his responsibilities. And he sees a woman bathing on her roof. And we see in that story just this awful consequences of what happens. He uses his power to force himself on her sexually and then murders her husband to cover up his sin. And as we said last week, but I think we need to hear it again, our reaction to David's massive downfall should not uh, be that we just wag our heads in self-righteousness when we see David. Our reaction should not be, how, how dare he? How could he? Because I would never. No, the point is David is the best of us. David is this man after God's own heart who loves the Lord. He's this kid who slayed a giant when no one else would. He was this guy who was on the run for so long of his life, and he had the opportunity to kill King Saul when he could have, but instead he just continued to show forgiveness over and over. He was the best of us. And he fell into this terrible, terrible sin. So it should be terrifying for us as we read it. Because if David was susceptible to this, the thing we should pull from that is, uh, this is susceptible for us too. Like, it should shock us to the core. If this got David, what does that mean for us? 
So here's what's going to happen. If you're reading this story for the first time, if you're an ancient Jew and you're reading the story of David, if you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, oh gosh, how, how could this have happened to David of all people? Like this was supposed to be the dude. This was supposed to be the guy who brought in the nation of Israel, who brought the kingdom into its height, into its power with God on their side. And now what's going to happen? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's just stop right there. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So Nathan was a prophet at that time. A quick word about prophets. Prophets were not these mystical, wizard-like people who were predicting the future all the time. Prophets acted as a direct line to God. They had direct communication with God, and they would always give a word to kings and the nation of Israel in order to set them straight. For them to be obeying God. And so Nathan was the prophetic counterpart to King David. So you have one of the biggest moral failures in the history of the Bible. Just go down in 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba. And then David and Uriah. And what David needs to do is he needs to repent. He needs to turn his heart back to God. He needs to come to grips with reality according to how God defines it. So repentance is the end goal, Nathan is going to be the means to set David onto this proper path of repentance. Keep on reading with me. Verse 1. He came to him, and Nathan said to David, he says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, a quick reminder, this is ancient Israel. They're an agrarian society. They're mostly all farmers. And even still, like, the love that this guy has for his lamb is is pretty intense. He treats this lamb as one of his own kids. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd, to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, took, that word took is similar, that same verb from 2 Samuel 11 to describe when David's guards took Bathsheba. This rich man took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan is using this story to awaken David's imagination, to awaken his conscience around this one big idea. And the big idea is, here's this rich man, he has everything, but he steals, he violently takes from this other man, which as Adam mentioned last week, is supposed to clue us in to David's treatment of Bathsheba. This is David, he objectified Bathsheba, dehumanized her, violated her. And so we see in verse 5, what is David's response? We see David's response, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. David's reaction is total shock. And it's almost a bit of an overreaction, because look at the order in that verse. It says, This man deserves to die. And he should restore what he took from that man fourfold. It's like, all right, how does that actually work? He's dead. Anyway, but even when you look at the Levitical law, like if this were to happen, this was not something that was punishable by death. 
So you see David, like, in his righteousness saying, no, he shouldn't have done that. This man deserves to die. And he doesn't even connect the dots yet. We see this weird, dramatic irony, even in saying in verse 5, as the Lord lives. Like, here's this guy. He's blinded by his own sin. He doesn't really understand what's happening here. As one pastor said of this verse, this is David's conscience waking up. He's starting to get a clear picture again of what's right or what's, and what's wrong, but it hasn't fully sunk in yet. He hasn't really connected the dots. And then the turn in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is Nathan speaking on behalf of God. So imagine David is on the throne. Nathan is talking to him. He points the finger at him. And now whenever Nathan speaks, it's as though it's the words of God talking straight at David's soul. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So this is a bit of foreshadowing of what we're going to teach next week. But David's sin has consequences because of this great thing that he's done. He's going to experience the repercussions of that for the rest of his life. But before we get into that next week, uh, one immediate way we can apply this passage is, number one, you need Nathans. You need Nathans in your life. Repentance was the end goal for David. Nathan was the means to bring him there. Nathan was David's grace gift at that time. He needed someone. He needed someone to call him out on his sin. And God sent Nathan to be a grace gift to David's soul to help correct him to bring him back on the path of repentance. I even love the way verse 1 says, it just says, Nathan was sent to David. God sent Nathan to David. Like, we don't know any of the backstory whatsoever. It's almost this picture of divine intervention. God just sends Nathan because he sees, God sees David in this downward spiral of sin. He knows he needs help, and then God says, all right, Nathan, you go. It's this picture of divine intervention. So God laid it on Nathan's heart. Nathan obeyed the voice of God. Nathan put his reputation on the line. His literal life was on the line to call David out on this. It would have been the worst thing in the world if Nathan just ignored it. It would have been the worst thing in the world if he received this word from the Lord and Nathan just suppressed it saying, nah, David will be fine. He'll figure it out. And this is why you and I need Nathans in our lives because you need people to tell you your blind spots. Hebrews 3 talks about the deceitfulness of sin, how we're all susceptible, how we all have these sinful blind spots in our lives. And if you're here this morning thinking, well, I'm pretty self-aware, I know for sure I don't have blind spots, then you for sure have those blind spots. You need those people who see those, who see those spots, and you need to see them as grace gifts in your life. But not only that, Nathan revealed to David his blind spots in a way that David was going to best receive it. He used a story to wake him up. And I just wonder, even reading this text for the last few weeks, like how did Nathan know that David was going to best receive it through a story? We don't know. Well, for one, Nathan was a prophet, so he had God supernaturally speaking to him to tell him, use this story first. And while we don't have the office of prophet today... Uh, in our context, 
uh, you're more likely to be confronted and corrected by the people who know you, who love Jesus, who are regularly in your life. To have Nathans in your life is only going to happen if you have deep, committed, connected friendships with people who love the Lord, who see you week in and week out. It's this posture that says, hey, I love you, and I know you love Jesus, and I know you have blind spots because that's what the Bible says. Because I love you, I want to make known to you this blind spot in your life that you might not be aware of. And I'm committed to you. I'm not shaming you or condemning you, but let's walk through this together. Let's go for repentance. Tim Keller says this. He says, your only hope for growth is that you deputize some people. You look at them and say, I give you a hunting license. Tell me what's wrong with me. Show me what's wrong with me. Talk to me about what's wrong with me, and I'm not just going to say I'm out of here because that's what users do, but not friends. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm not going to get very, very, very demolished. I'm not going to get incredibly mad. I'm going to make it safe for you to see into my flaws and talk to me about it. Even in teaching team on Wednesday, we were saying, wouldn't it be cute if we had like these little sheriff badges or something? Everyone had a few of them, and it was like, I deputize you, I deputize you. We're not but we thought about it. It's this idea that you need to intentionally invite people into this. If you're thinking, well, I don't have those type of people in my life, it might be because you haven't actually deputized them the way that Keller talks about. You need to grant people that hunting license, people who know you, who love you, who see you week in and week out, who see you in the good and the bad, and can call you out on sin and blind spots. Which, as I bring this up, I'm even like feeling it in the room a little bit this morning. Even as I bring this up, like some of us are feeling a little tense right now, right? I think part of the reason is like all of this sounds very un-PC. Like we have no category in our culture for healthy confrontation. It's like if someone confronts you, if someone tries to correct you, the cultural climate says, well, that must mean they hate you. That must mean they despise you, right? We actually don't have any category for this. Or if you've grown up in the church, maybe you've seen bad examples of this where people, perhaps even leaders and pastors with self-righteous agendas begin condemning people in their church and they do a whole lot of damage in the process with no real grace, no aim of repentance. So rather than have a healthy biblical understanding of confrontation like the Bible calls us to, we just have no category whatsoever. But the truth is, if we don't have this understanding, then we're always going to be blinded by our sin, and we're never actually going to grow. If your sin is left alone, unable for anyone to talk to you about it, it'll be like black mold for your soul. It just stays in the dark, left alone, only to just suffocate you spiritually. And you need those Nathans in your life, the people who have covenanted with you to help you so that they can call out that sin before you spiritually die. And I think the danger for some of us in this room is perhaps you're thinking, well, I have a whole squad of Nathans in my life. Like, talk to me, tell me the truth, I'm an open book, but how many of those Nathans actually disagree with you? Right? It's like, yeah, I'm completely vulnerable. Yeah, tell me whatever, just don't tell me the things I don't want to hear. Well, then that's not really a Nathan. Right? Give me a whole room of Nathans who only talk about the good in me. It's like, that's great for my ego. That's terrible for my soul, though. How many of those Nathans actually confront and disagree with you? Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful 
are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have friends in your life who wound you for the sake of you knowing and growing in your love for Jesus? Who are safe so that they can preach to you the gospel? Who don't shun you or condemn you, but point you, who want to restore you so that you can grow in repentance, grow in your love for Jesus? We need to have this same attitude in our church family if we ever want to grow in the image and likeness of Jesus. Jeremiah Burroughs, who I believe is a Puritan, he said this, uh, that I think is just so fascinating when it comes to being confronted. He says, you know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise. But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. I love that. A Christian who is hardened by self-righteousness, a Christian who is marked by immaturity, when you correct or confront them, they will just make a noise. They will let the whole world know what just happened if you try to confront or correct them. So imagine if this was David and he was just a very self-righteous, self-hardened, immature Christian in 2019 and Nathan were to confront David, what would one of David's responses be? I think for one, he could have blame shifted. He could have blame shifted. He could have said, what was I supposed to do? She was bathing on her roof. I had no control. It just kind of happened, you know? David could have deflected. He could have said, hey, I'm really busy, Nathan. It is really stressful being king. You don't know what it's like to be me. He could have minimized. He could have minimized his sin when he got called out. He could have said, yeah, so I just murdered one guy. It could have been a lot worse. Let's look at the positives here. He could have been outraged. He could have said, whoa, Nathan, a little holier than thou, aren't you? Like, who made you the sin police? Only God can judge me. He could have even said, Nathan, I, I don't mind what you said. I just don't like how you said it. Right? That one hit close to home, huh? All right. Next one, he could have turned the tables on Nathan. He could have said, well, Nathan, since we're talking about sin, you know, you're not so perfect either. Let's talk about your sin for a second, huh? Or, and this is a very 2019 move, he could have just ghosted on Nathan. He could have said, all right, good talk, Nathan. Yeah, cool. So talk to you never. Tim said I should say hashtag canceled. Like, I don't know if that's a relevant word. He said you should say it. People will get it. So this is me saying it. <laughs> but a self-denying, mature Christian yields to God's hands, even through others, and makes no noise. They take it with a sober heart. And while we're stepping on toes today, you know, let's keep on going with it. A general rule for this is the closer someone is to you, the more you should pay attention when they confront and correct you. The closer someone is to you, the more you should pay attention when they confront and correct. The people who know you best are the best sources of information about you. So we want to be receptive to everyone if they call us out on something, but the people we really need to listen to are the people that see us week in, week out, day in, day out. So for me, I, I want to be receptive. The pastors call me out. Like, I see them nearly every single day for the last three years. Or if my wife, who sees me most every minute of the day for the last several years, if they say something about me, I really need to be quick to listen and not be so defensive. I better listen up. 
People who are married in the room, your spouse is not God, obviously. They're not inerrant. They're not perfect. But if they are a Christian, they have the Holy Spirit, and they likely by far have the best picture of your soul, and they know the blind spots that are within you. And so you need to hear that. They are a gift to you to help you grow so that you don't grow spiritually numb or dead. I'll tell you how this looked like in my life recently. I was traveling somewhere. I was at a conference, and I got a text from someone in my life group. And the text said, hey, are you free in an hour or so to talk on the phone? And that was it. Like, we weren't texting back and forth. It just said, hey, you're free to talk. And I said, yes. But also, like, if you do that to me, just give me a heads up what we're talking about. So I was like, oh, gosh, what I do? What happened? What happened? So we scheduled a time to talk. And we call on the phone. We make some small talk. And then after a while, I said, so what's up? Why would you want to talk? And he started by saying, well, first, let me tell you about two men, a poor man and a rich man. No, he didn't do that. He just said, listen, I know at Rhythms, a lot of times we're going out and we see a lot of guys who aren't in our life group come out, and that's cool, but I notice you're on the phone a lot. I notice whenever there's a lull in conversation, you just are quick to refresh your email or text, and you don't really engage with the people around you. And so you might not be aware of that, but I wanted to call you out on that. And when he said that, like, my eyes were open of like, oh, gosh, yeah. I do that a lot. That is super obnoxious. And I thanked him and said, dude, thank you so much for calling me out. And our friendship grew from that. But even in that moment, that was not what I wanted to hear. I didn't feel good about myself in the moment. It wasn't like, oh, great, this is awesome. No. Internally, in my mind, I was being so defensive. I was thinking of all of these million excuses as to why I'm right and he's wrong. And I was thinking in my head, well, you know, like I'm in ministry. So like anything could happen at any moment. That's why I have to refresh my email. I'm a, I'm a dad with three kids. Like what happens if, if something happens at home? Like I need to be checking in with my wife constantly, just texting throughout. And as I was thinking through all of these excuses, the Holy Spirit was just pressing on me like, dude, be quiet. <laughs> just receive this. And I thanked him and for me now, repentance looks like putting my phone on airplane mode when I'm with people at rhythm, when I'm in life group. It looks like turning off my phone most of the time so that I can interact with the people that God has placed around me. Repentance for me now still looks like proactively engaging with people, not just waiting for them to talk to me, because that's what user relationships do, but friendships where I'm proactively talking and engaging with them. And that's what repentance looks like for me now because of that confrontation. And I think that's important to know that healthy confrontation reaches its end goal. It's a success when we are moved towards repentance. Healthy confrontation is not that we just make people grieve in their sin and recognize it. That's a part of it. That's a huge component of it. But that's only half of it. The second half is you are moved towards repentance to change by God's grace and the power of the Spirit to walk more closely in step with Jesus. It's important to note repentance, it means a change of heart, an acknowledgement that what you did was wrong, and a resolve in your mind by God's grace to turn from that sin and to turn to Jesus. So depending on your personality, it will be easy for you if you are confronted or corrected in your sin to just have this attitude of woe is me. 
oh my gosh, they called me out on my sin. They figured me out. They figured out I'm a sinner. Woe is me to be like Forky from Toy Story 4. Like, I'm trash. I'm just complete trash. But whenever someone calls you out in sin, understand that they see a blind spot in you that you cannot see. So thank them. They took a lot of risk on their end to talk to you. So take that to the Lord. Don't take that to others to gossip about it. Don't ignore it. Take that to the Lord. Ask him what repentance looks like. So here's what's going to happen this week in life groups. We want to invite you to put this into practice. We're going to invite others to lovingly confront and correct one another with an aim for us to see our sin more clearly and be restored so that we can look more like Jesus. Yeah, I kind of figured. <laughs> Lots of silence, yeah. I understand as I'm saying this, this is probably going to be the week where you get sick. <laughs> this is going to be the week where you just accidentally double book. It's like, yeah, my dentist, it was our biannual checkup. He was only available Thursday from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. It's like, he's a dentist. It's weird. Yeah, I know. This is going to be the week where you never talked about review the mission at all, but this is the one week where it's like, man, the spirit is just dropping all these names of people like, oh, man, we could pray for this person and pray for this person, and ah, we're out of times. Well, we can't. Bummer. I just want you to know, if you miss life group this week over an excuse like that, I just want you to realize you are passively sabotaging your soul from experiencing these grace gifts in your life to help you see your blind spots so that you can look more like Jesus. So what's David going to do? King David could have responded in any number of ways. If you watch any of those old TV shows or movies, whenever someone confronts a king in his throne room and the king doesn't like it, it's off with your head. But how does David respond? Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is David's wake-up moment. He finally gets it out of this downward sin spiral. Here's this light bulb moment. I have sinned against the Lord. David finally wakes up from this unreality of sin that he has been living in for so long. The text goes on to say that David spends the next week fasting and praying before God. And we know that David followed through on his confrontation to walk into complete repentance because of Psalm 51. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. Like we said, repentance was the end goal. Nathan was the means. 2 Samuel 12 was the means. Psalm 51 is the end goal. Psalm 51 is a snapshot of what David prayed over that week. This prayer is how David processes through his sin. And it's a beautiful picture of repentance. This is how we ought to respond when we are confronted, when we are corrected. Repentance. Restoration. So as we wrap up, I just want to read this over us. And as you're reading it along with me, I just want you to notice the shifts in tone. If you are grieving over your sin and you don't know what to pray, Psalm 51 is a great prayer to pray. Imagine this is David crying out to God over his week of prayer and fasting. Psalm 51 says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Man, how's that for a prayer? Verse 7, let the bones you have broken in me rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Notice how David's prayer moves and shifts in tone from grieving over his sin to clinging to God's grace and mercy to rejoicing and worshiping God through it all because he knows God is faithful. That while David's sin is great, God's grace is greater. And that's what he clings on to. The only way you can experience full repentance, the only way you can experience this picture is if Psalm 51 is the normal pattern of your life. If Psalm 51 is the normal pattern of your life, to do this regularly, ongoingly. For some of us in the room, the reason why you've never really experienced the presence and peace of Jesus in your life is because you've never actually walked in full repentance. That for you, you're a Christian in the vague sense. You know some of the theological principles, but it's all really abstract and you've never actually owned it. And because of that, you've never actually experienced real forgiveness, real peace in your life. But if you ever really want to own your sin, then you need to take it before God who offers you peace and mercy and this could have easily been David. The man after God's own heart could have easily become, had Nathan not shown up, another wicked king, just like Saul. But he repents, and he turns his heart back to God, and God keeps David on the throne for the rest of David's life. Now, there would be consequences, yes, but God didn't hang David's sin over him anymore. David was forgiven. And the same goes for us when we repent. God doesn't see our sin, and neither should you. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, the true king from the line of David, interceding on your behalf. Will you go ahead and pray with me? Jesus, I pray that our lives are marked by repentance, by the ongoing pattern of seeing our sin, owning it for what it is, and clinging to you, who is full of grace 
and mercy and love. God, we pray even this week that we see the people in our lives who love you as grace gifts that you've set purposefully in our lives to see our blind spots, to call out the sin that's in our lives that we do not see. And God, we know it's going to be scary, but you're good and you're in control and you are so full of grace. So God, I pray even in life groups this week that we would just really experience truly, perhaps for the first time ever, real forgiveness and love and mercy for our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.